the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the Science Inside. My name is Elna Schutz. And I'm Lebogang Madisha. So you're hearing in the background a song uh, by Might Be Giants explaining what the sun is and why it really shines. And the reason why we started the show with this is that we are going to be talking about NASA's historic mission of the Parker Solar Probe's journey to the sun. It's all to help scientists better understand the solar system and how changing the weather patterns around its corona are likely to affect us. Of incandescent plasma The sun's not simply made out of gas No, no, no The sun is a quagma It's not made of fire Forget what you've been told in the past Plasma Electrons are free Plasma For a state of matter, not gas Not liquid, not solid Jam, guys. The song, the background, I like it. <laughs> but anyway, there's a ton of information about the sun, mostly because astronomers have been studying the sun for years. And now, with the Parker Solar Probe, scientists will be able to look even closer at the sun. Okay, Lebo, but let me put you on the spot. Okay. How much do you actually know about the sun? I mean... I think a decent amount. You know, I know that the sun is the heart of the solar system. You know, you know. Important. You know. And as far as I know, it's a yellow dwarf star, a hot ball of burning gas. Okay. I think that's decent. Yeah, you're doing pretty well. (laughs) You're not on the level of... um, uh, you know the sun in in Teletubbies with the smiley face? <laughs> We're not there. We know some science. <laughs> but here's some more things you might not actually know. The gravity that holds the solar system together. It makes sense, but that's exactly where it comes from, from the sun. And it keeps all the other planets and even the smallest particles of debris in the orbit around the sun. So the gravity is the main reason why the universe has not actually collapsed or caused all the planets to crash into each other. Okay, now I'm curious. Is this why everything is round in the universe? If you think about it, planets, you know, every... Stars, everything. Everything is more or less round. I mean, okay, not perfectly, but pretty much, yes. You are right, it is because of the gravity around the sun. Um, it, you know, 
making it the most efficient shape. Um, the, the, the gravity uh, means that the, that a sphere is the most, um, most efficient shape. But other things like asteroids tend to have irregular shapes because the gravity around them is not as intense. Which makes sense because they are quite small. So the gravity holding them together isn't that strong. Exactly. And obviously we all know this, but um, the other important, important thing about the sun, specifically for us on Earth, is that so many things are influenced. So seasons, ocean currents, the weather, climate, you know, even your tan is influenced by the sun. For people who tan, I burn. (laughs) Okay, I just burn. But all of this, uh, all of this, and even aurora, which is uh, one of the effects of energetic particles, which can speed out from the sun due to solar storms. So all of this is affected by the sun. We are going to talk about it a little bit later in the show. Um, but it's it's pretty good to know, um, Lebo, that the sun has so many effects, uh, not just on our Earth, but on the the planet as a whole. So that's why we're talking about it today. Exactly. It's really interesting, though, because how the sun is located, it's such, I don't know, it fascinates me how the, the whole solar system is structured. And this dwarf star, dwarf, I emphasize, like emphasizing how small it is, is actually influencing the shape of the entire solar system. And the solar system has a a fairly round shape on its own as well. Mm, It's pretty dope. And it all ends up looking so beautifully balanced, in my opinion. Mm. Whenever I I look at diagrams of the universe and even our planet, I'm so in awe with how everything seems to be just right and and in some level of, of... So the Parker probe will revolutionize our understanding of the sun and help us explain other phenomena about the sun. Yes, we will be speaking today on the show with some South African scientists about um, about space science, specifically the sun and what NASA is doing. So if you've heard of it briefly somewhere in the news, today on the show we're really going to take you, take you into some of the details. And in our unscience today, we are talking about worms. Yes, we do get weird as usual. And these worms are ingesting antidepressants from our sewage. And it's not having the best effects on birds that are eating these worms. <laughs> it just sounds so ridiculous on every level. I know. Like, okay, so now when they're just ingesting these antidepressants, I'm wondering how they feel. <laughs> like, I genuinely wonder, so like, do these worms feel a certain way or do the birds get affected like emotionally by these antidepressants? Like, maybe, maybe their lives are better now. <laughs> <laughs> But don't don't they have like a numbing effect to an extent? Oh, well, we will we will explore all of that in and yeah. later. <laughs> Lebo, what comes to mind when you think about a space weather warning center? I mean, like second, uh, not second coming, but like the real version of Star Wars coming true. You know, like they're gonna warn us about some invasion or something. <laughs> like it's gonna get weird out here. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> You're expecting a young tweet in the morning, like, hey, the aliens are coming. Yeah, like, kind guys, okay, you know, just stay, stay at home, guys, because the aliens are coming. <laughs> <laughs> Don't talk to strangers. 
I am so sad that that is not, in fact, what the South African Space Weather Warning Center does. But they do do some other interesting things that we'll get into later in the show. Debo, if people want to find us, how do they do that? They can get us on our Facebook as VIFM. On Twitter, they can tweet us at VIFM, hashtag Science Inside. The podcast is also up on iTunes and we are also on vits.journalism.co.za forward slash science you can share your voice notes with us on our whatsapp line at 084-078-4912 next after the break we look at nasa and their new solar probe this is the science inside with elna welcome to the show this is the science inside Remember, you can find us on our Twitter as VIFM, hashtag Science Inside, and on our Facebook. You may have heard the headlines recently about NASA and their new solar probe. They're going to send something really close to the sun and see what happens. You might have heard this, but we have all the details um, from some, someone right here in South Africa working in space science. We go now to a story by our producer, Bridget LePere. Roll for ignition. 10, 9, Nine. 8, 7, 6... Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Liftoff. That was the sound of NASA's Delta IV heavy rocket launching the Parker Solo Probe into space. The Parker Solo Probe mission is the first of its kind in human history to make a journey from Earth into space in an attempt to touch the sun. The Parker Solar Probe, as it is affectionately named after a prominent astrophysicist, Eugene Parker, who pioneered the theory of solar winds. The Parker Solar Probe is now in its third week in space and is said to have completed its first trajectory correction maneuver known as TCM-1, an achievement which enables near-perfect timing of its force system, placing the spacecraft on course to touch the Earth star, the Sun. The following is an insert of Eugene Parker talking about what he expects from this mission. I have always said on a mission like this into new territory, you're going to be in for some surprises. Maybe not big ones, maybe only little ones, but you're going to find that your point of view will have to change to conform with the data. And that's the fun part. If you reduce the problem to how close can you get, that's what it amounts to. It's an exploratory mission, and I think it helps to mention that the sunward surface of your heat shield will be incandescent. And the fact that it's carbon doesn't mean it'll burn because there isn't any air in, in space. So the, the heat shield will hold up for a long time. Of the last 150 years, people have been working on this because the sun is sitting up there spitting out particles by unknown mechanisms, accomplishing aurora, magnetic fluctuations, magnetic storms, and so forth. And it, it was right in your face, and uh, likely you could make a lot of progress. The Parker Solar Probe is said to be more than five and a half million miles away from Earth, traveling at 39,500 miles per hour 
and in the following, Daniel Kanema, a science engagement astronomer at the South African Astronomical Observatory, speaks about the key objectives of this mission. We have been trying to study the sun for many years. We've sent numerous probes over the last 50 years or so to study the sun. We understand a large amount about the sun, but we don't understand everything. There are certain things which we definitely don't understand about how the sun works and particularly the solar wind. So there is a constant solar wind blowing off the sun, which is actually, I mean, not not that constant. It's sometimes very, very strong and sometimes quite weak. And that affects our magnetosphere, so Earth, directly. So one of the main science goals for the probe is to try and better understand the solar wind. The Science Inside went off on its own mission to find out how useful the sun is to ordinary South Africans and if they are aware of what its presence means for the Earth. I use the sun to just chill and relax with my friends. Yo, to tan so that I can get a bit darker. (laughs) To take bomb selfies. And for your skin, I don't know, there's some sort of vitamin that you get from the sun. So for my skin as well. For me, I use it for temperature. Let's say I'm feeling cold and I go outside and just chill in the sun to get like some more sunlight. I use the sun to warm myself in the winter and for my plants in my garden. <laughs> for the light, to see everything that's happening. That's all. And warmth, yes. I guess I get vitamin D from the sun. The sun also, I don't know, really. <laughs> Photosynthesis for my plants. I'm planting vegetables in the house. What I use the sun for, to take good pictures. Sometimes when I'm in the Eastern Cape, I use it to warm my water so that I can bath. It gets warm enough that you can literally bath in. To dry up the sunlight bar. And for photosynthesis. Vitamin D. I use the sun to keep warm. In winter when it's cold. The fundamental question everyone is asking here is why do human beings have the urge to touch the sun? Figuratively speaking, that is. Daniel explains. So basically the sun's solar wind and when there are things like solar storms, it basically emits very highly charged particles which then stream towards the Earth. The Earth has a magnetic field which protects us from a lot of these charged particles because it deflects the charged particles as they approach us. And that actually causes the aurora, which you may know of, because these charged particles get deflected by the magnetosphere and channeled to the Earth's poles. And then when those charged particles cascade down through our atmosphere, they give off light as they lose energy and create the aurora borealis in the northern hemisphere and the aurora australis in the southern hemisphere. So that's quite a a special event, but those particles are coming from the sun. When you have a particularly large solar storm, which we don't fully understand why they occur, we get a lot of charged particles coming towards us very, very fast, and we will get aurora and sometimes quite beautiful ones. But if the storm is particularly big, those charged particles can disrupt the magnetosphere enough that large electricity grid pylons can get disrupted by this magnetic field, causing blackouts. And this has happened in the past. The other effect, we have thousands of satellites orbiting around the Earth, giving us satellite TV, GPS, various communications, 
and all of those satellites are susceptible to such winds of highly charged particles. So if, if such a solar storm happens, then there's a chance that those communications may be knocked out. Why is the solar corona, the outer atmosphere of the sun, a million or two degrees when the sun itself is only 5,600? It isn't because of sunshine, that's for sure. And I guess the other important thing is the explosive aspect of a lot of magnetic activity near the sun. A fascinating subject. It's terribly complicated. One tries to reduce it to basic effects, but we don't have any real data to get our teeth into. And that things about the activity that where we really need to learn and see if our simple models are catching the right things or is it different. Again, we don't know until we make the flight and have a year or two to think about the data. We will simply watch it happen and gather all the facts together that we can and hope that we can begin to form a clearer picture of what's going on. The uh, other major science driver for this particular probe is to try and understand the area around the sun, so the sun's corona. Basically, the, the sun's outer atmosphere, you would expect to cool down as you got further away. And obviously, when you get out towards Earth's orbit, it has cooled down. But before it cools down, in the immediate corona around the sun, there is a, a dramatic heating. So the, the temperature immediately around the sun rises from the surface temperature of about 5,500 degrees Celsius up to millions of degrees, over a million degrees. And why that happens, we don't know. While the Parker Solar Probe is built to survive the most brutal of environments, the most concerning issue is solar flares which come off from the solar winds. These winds are said to have 11-year intervals of activity, but these violent outbursts may cause the spacecraft to be blown further away from its cause. Daniel has more. So we don't understand solar storms well enough to be able to predict them with any accuracy. We do see them occurring and we can predict the effects on Earth for a lead time of a few hours up to a few days, depending on the speed of the, the wind. But actually predicting when such a storm will occur is beyond our capabilities at the moment. But the, the sun is a, a very active object and it does go through an 11-year cycle of high activity and low activity. It's in a bit of a low activity state at the moment, so over the next few years, the solar activity will be ramping up. So there will be solar storms happening, and the shield that the, the solar probe has is, has been designed to withstand these sorts of um, storms. So it shouldn't be too much of a problem, provided the storm is not too big. The journey to the sun is unlike other missions which NASA has carried out in the past, like flying to the moon. The sun has a massive gravitational field. The Earth orbits the sun at astronomical speeds of 30 kilometers per second, which makes it very difficult for any spacecraft to reach. In order to get to a smaller orbit and get closer to the sun, you actually have to slow the spacecraft down from 30 kilometers a second to some smaller number where it can start approaching the sun. And the way that this probe is going to do that, it has been launched towards Venus and then it will orbit past Venus about seven times and slowly do a, a reverse 
gravitational assist, so it will lose energy as it passes Venus each time and slowly decrease its orbit around the sun so it can get closer and closer. The spacecraft is now all alone in space and has no way of coming back to Earth. It is fascinating to see how the spacecraft will be able to carry out the mission and function optimally under such intense conditions and produce results. There are always things which are unforeseen and there are safe modes and things where the the probe may go into if something particularly bad happens. There's obviously no way of going and seeing the probe again. It's off now, it's on its own and we won't be visiting it. So we can communicate with it, we can update software and things like that remotely, but it's largely on its own now. The Parker Solar Probe has various apparatus which will assist the researchers to collect their data for the study. Basically, the the probe has various instruments on it which will make various measurements which then will get beamed back to Earth for analysis. So the, the one instrument is measuring the electric and magnetic fields around the sun. So it's a it's called field, that instrument, and basically it will be measuring the electric field and the magnetic field and then send that information back to us using magnetometers and things like that. There's also a, a wide field imager, so we should get some really nice images from close-ups of the sun, which are also useful scientifically for, for looking at the sun closer and trying to work out what is exactly going on on the surface. There is also uh, another instrument which will be collecting particles which are are coming off the sun. So they have a little solar probe cup which will be collecting highly charged particles and then analyzing them to see how fast they're moving, their density, their temperature, and basically sampling the, the environment that this probe is in. Eugene also hopes that in time, astrophysicists and perhaps the Parker Solar Probe will be able to feed his 70-year-old curiosity on the phenomena behind sunspots. Although I will have to make one remark because it continues to amuse me. When I was a student about 1948, I got interested in sunspots. They're just a curiosity. And I read up on it. There's quite a bit known about them. But why we have sunspots is unknown. And I looked at that and I read about sunspots and I thought, well, we ought to be able to knock this one over in a couple of years. That was in the late 40s and here we are in 2018 and I cannot explain to you why the sun is obliged to have spots. To add insult to injury, it has been discovered that some stars have spots or dark areas on them that are half the disk of the star itself. So it's a complete mystery. And uh, I have gotten away from it. I found other easier problems to work with, although I continue to be fascinated by the sunspot. The sunspots are actually basically a result of these storms that I I mentioned earlier. So you get an upwelling of plasma on the surface of the sun, um, which emits a, a flare, which flings a whole lot of highly charged particles off into space. And in that process, there is a a cooling of the surface of the sun. And that spot is still very, very hot, but compared to the rest of the sun, it is cooler. And therefore, it appears as a darker spot on the sun. So these are all related, actually, to the, the solar flares and the solar weather. Though the South African Astronomical Observatory and the South African Radio Astronomy Observatory do not 
do not directly work on solar physics like the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. They do, however, have a smaller instrument, the Southern African Large Telescope, also known as SALT, which helps astronomers to observe and monitor the sun from Earth. SALT has also discovered a binary star system, the Hourglass Nebula, one of the most popular nebulae to be captured by the telescope. The lobes of gas shaped into an hourglass appear like fiery butterflies or an eye-gazing out of space into the earth. That was a story about the recent NASA sun probe by our producer, Bridget Lepera. And Lebo, I'm so excited to see what what kind of data we actually get from this probe and what happens. That's true because we've only had, like we've only seen the sun from so far. So now it's really exciting because it almost feels like what no, we not almost feels like we are touching the sun. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> not not you and me, but a robot. Yes. Somebody is. Some computer is. <laughs> <laughs> So we will get uh, back into more space science later on the show. But first, after the break, let's take a little bit of a moment with our unscience. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. It's time for that part of the show, unscience time. Today's Unscience was produced by Harmony Molefe and it comes from University of New York News with music by soundbible.com and bensound.com. This is the one part of the show where we just take a step back. We look at something a bit strange that might be very real, serious research, but it just always makes us laugh. You'd just be surprised at what scientists work on. Let's get into it. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. So, how do you think um, birds find mates, Alna? Tinder. <laughs> no. <laughs> Swipe left. She right. mm. cute. <laughs> no. Um, I don't. They make noises. They like whistle at each other, and then the other guys like, "Hey." Kind of sounds like guys, but anyway. Um, not really. Now, male birds sing particular songs to female ones in order to express their love for them. That's kind of cute. So they hit a note for love. It's like a special romantic song. Yeah. And now, this is a very romantic thing, but has been found that during courtship, male birds sing less to females who have been feeding on dilute concentrations of antidepressants. <laughs> okay. Lebo, I know we're making jokes, <laughs> but why? Explain to me why birds are on antidepressants. How? How is this even happening? So these female birds ingest small amounts of antidepressants while feeding on worms, maggots, and flies at surge treatment plants, making them less attractive to birds of the opposite sex. I am sure no no psychiatrist in the world has ever thought that the medicine that they're prescribing is going to end up with maggots and birds. Uh, I know, like you don't consider such and how it gets there also. It's very fascinating. Researchers studied birds feeding at surge treatment plants. In these surge plants, there can be flies, maggots and worms, as I said, and these organisms can ingest pharmaceuticals, including Prozac, from the, inge- from the ingestion in human systems. 
The study has shown that dilute concentrations of Prozac obtained from the sewage treatments makes females that feed on them find it hard to get their mate. Hmm. Okay, we'll get to the birds in a second, but just explain to me more. That means that the worms and the flies are also on antidepressants? Yeah. Yeah, they are. So, I mean, if you've got a sad fly because you've been chasing it around the house, at least, you know, maybe it might be taking antidepressants by the sewage plant. But anyway, um, antidepressants are prescribed to patients and most of them tend to be stable and active for over long periods of time, even after human stalls. So flies and maggots would carry these not on purpose as they feed on human waste at the sewage treatment plants where the birds also feed on them. However, now these flies would not experience the effects as seen in birds. So the flies are better off. They might just feel a little bit more relaxed. Who knows? <laughs> but they're better off compared to the birds. Okay, so how exactly was this studied? So Dr. Catherine Arnold and Sophia Whitlock from Environmental Department at the University of New York studied the effects of these compounds, specifically looking at Prozac on the environment and on birds that ingest them. They have discovered that there are behavioral changes that occur in birds that feed on these particular pharmaceuticals. And this further leads to the birds being uh, perceived as unattractive to male birds. These changes may include changes in the way they fly or even quack or even the way they eat, which is quite interesting. Your antidepressants out there are affecting the way birds eat somehow. It also observed that males sing more than twice as much and far, for far too long to normal females as compared to females on treatment, those that are receiving doses of Prozac from their food sources, their flies and maggots and that. This is seen as females in, who ingest Prozac appear not to behave as much as normal females do. Okay, but on a slightly more serious note, just looking at the environment, what does not having a mate mean for these birds? Because this is obviously not a good thing. Yeah, it's not, definitely. I mean, our environment is being affected here. Singing is an integral part of courtship with these birds, right? And it is used by males to fancy females and used by females to choose the highest quality men to father their chicks. So without a mate, they would not be able to breed or either they will have less chances of breeding as males would not get, would not be attracted to the female birds. So you'd get a decline in the population that they're producing as a result. Sure. And they, they're not doing this on purpose. They're just birds looking for their food. If only they knew. Shame, yeah. Because these birds are not out there like, okay, I'm going to test my food samples before I eat them. Mm, you've got pharmaceuticals. Sorry, I'm not going to eat. They just eat. Like it's a fly, it's a worm, it's a maggot, it's food. And this is just one more of so many stories um, where, obviously we're laughing about it. It's funny, but at the same time, in reality, of course, it's not funny. It's humans affecting the environment in, in very real ways. Thank you so much for our unscience today, Lebo. After the break, we are going to speak about more space weather, specifically the local warning center that we have here in South Africa. 
Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. The Science Inside. A, a meteorite has been found in Botswana's central Kalahari Game Reserve. And the reason I'm mentioning this is it's a pretty unique story. These are fragments from the asteroid 2018 LA. That's the name. And usually these little bits of space rock falling to Earth really surprise us. There's a big flash of light. There is a video of this specific asteroid online, actually. But here's the thing. This time, the scientists knew this would happen a whole eight hours beforehand. Every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Only on Volfam. This is The Science Inside with Elna. You're still on The Science Inside. And we've been talking about the recent solar probe launched by NASA. But they're not the only space agency around. And they're not the only ones looking at the sun. Yes, we're definitely in on the game. Mzanzi has a space agency, if you didn't know that, and they also look specifically at the sun. We have on the line with us Mpo Chisapungo, who is from the South African National Space Agency. Mpo is currently the space weather practitioner at SANSA. They have the space weather regional warning center located in Armanus in the Western Cape. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. So tell us, how exactly is space weather monitored? Um, firstly, I would just like to um, define what space weather is. Um, the, the space weather describes the conditions on the sun and then the interaction it has um, in the interplanetary space and how it affects our technology here on Earth. Right. So the, the space weather, how we monitor the space weather, we, we have um, the space-based as well as the ground-based instrument to monitor the sun or space weather. Um, for example, we have um, the SDO satellite, which is called the Solar Dynamic Observatory Satellite, and that. A uh, satellite takes the images of the sun and then you can study different things on the sun using uh, that data. So it sounds so serious to have a space weather warning center, um, which brings me to my first question around these warnings that you issue. What kinds of warnings are they and to whom do they go? Okay, um, the, the space weather center... We, we, when we are monitoring the, the space weather conditions here at uh, SAMSA, the Space Weather Center, we are actually looking at, we have, if I can call it, we have different space weather centers around the world or around the globe, and we are one of the space weather centers as part of this International Space Environmental Service. And what happens is we are looking at the same information on the sun, and the difference is the impact it has on the ground. So we're looking at the regional impact. That's why we have this ground-based instrumentation also to measure the impact on the ground of what's happening on the sun. So the kind of information or warning that we send out um, will depend on what kind of events we are looking at and what time of the day. Um, that event we are looking at because we are looking at, at, the, at the regional impact. 
for example, we, we, uh, some of the warnings include um, the solar flare event uh, as well as the coronal mass ejection and geomagnetic storms. So if we monitor, for example, uh, a solar flare, then we quickly uh, put together a warning and then we send it out to our clients. Um, the, 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 the clients uh, are different. Uh, this warning goes to, to various sectors uh, because it can, it can affect um, different sectors from communication uh, to energy to aviation sector as well as satellite operators. So mostly our information are going to uh, the, the clients who are using communication um, because it has the impact on communication. Facebook has the impact on communication. So now I'm just curious, what kind of precaution, precautionary measures would they have to take if they get a solar flare warning? Do they have to put up barriers towards radiation? What do they have to do? Um, just um, the, 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 uh, the different sectors will uh, take different measures depending on how uh, the, the level of their effect in their ways of operation. Um, for example, if um, in the case of satellite operators, if there is a, an event happening on the sun that can they, that can affect or damage their satellite, uh, they may put their satellite into a standby mode during a storm and then turn it on again uh, later after the storm. So that's how they will um, actually uh, take the measures or precautions uh, on based on the space or the information that they get. Um, another example would be uh, maybe if we have um, the, the specific events that will affect communication for a certain period, let's say for, 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 for a few hours, like two to three hours, and that person knows that I won't be able to communicate during that time, so they might need to use other, or other ways of communication or they wait and then communicate after three hours when the storm um, has come back to normal. Right. Mpo, it sounds like a lot of the work you're doing, if you're doing it right, the ordinary consumer um, in South Africa or in the African region will probably not notice anything <laughs> because exactly <laughs> what you're doing is, is protecting us from things that could go wrong. And perhaps saving uh, businesses quite a lot of damage and money. Yes, yes, it can. <laughs> um, that's why we need to uh, do a special awareness um, here in South Africa, particularly, so that people can understand uh, the impact that it can have on our technological systems to see. Nowadays, we are so dependent on technology. Uh, a lot of things we do, we are using um, satellite communication, for example, you, 
your GPS phone navigation, when you are moving around a place where you don't know, you trust the GPS to navigate. But sometimes there might be errors of, of more than 50 meters um, when you are using the GPS, that's because there is a space of the event. Uh, it, it, it won't be necessarily every time that there is a particular event, but it is important to know that some of these uh, some of these errors may be caused by what's happening on the sun. Okay, so now how severe could these uh, events actually get? How bad can the effects be on us? Could it actually just cripple our whole day to day lives? Because we do rely on the digital world a lot, as you said. We rely on the satellites to give us all this information. So if a miscalculation does happen and the sun does affect satellites, then what does that mean? Does it mean we're all just not going to have access to the internet? <laughs> I will give maybe a more practical example because um, of the of the particular impact um, that it has on on various sectors. I want to give attention to the impact it has on our on our power grid. Um, for for example, there is a, a study called the Geomagnetical Endurance. Uh, it's done extensively at UCC. They study the impact of state on the power grid. And that has been proven that state uh, has the impact on power grid and it can damage the power grid uh, if there is a severe uh, state event. Uh, uh, the evidence there are some evidence on, on the peer-reviewed uh, articles which talk about the GIC uh, impact uh, on power grid um, in, in different uh, areas in, in, in around the globe. Like in the UK, for example, they show that they even put it on the risk register because they know what it can do. Uh, the impact it can it can have if maybe a power the power grid uh, are down. So imagine um, we lose uh, we, we lose the power grid or power in, in the country for maybe nine hours, and everything depends on 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 on, on the power, like your what you are doing in, in the banks. In, some systems are running on power, everything we are generating using power, and then we do that for nine hours, nothing else happens. <laughs> and nobody would want that, that's for sure. Paul, one of the things that the Warning Center keeps an eye on, one of the more drastic possibilities, is a solar superstorm, which sounds <laughs> which sounds quite threatening. Tell us more about what that means and what are the chances or possible effects? Um, the um, the solar system is like a, a very strong uh, play on the sun. It, uh, the, 
the, the solar flares are measured uh, in different intensities. Uh, so they measure how strong they are. They have different classes uh, of the flares, like the C-class flare, which is a, like a minor flare. We have the M-class flare, which is the moderate and then the X-class flare. So when you go to like X, and, and are in order, it's a logarithmic scale. So it's ten, each level is like 10 times stronger than the previous flare. So for example, if you have an X1 and then an X2, an X2 will be 10 times stronger than the X1. So a solar superstorm, when they talk about the solar superstorm, they always refer to one of our favorite uh, storm which happened uh, in 1859. Uh, the quality current on events. Um, but there was a similar solar flare which happened around 2012. But that solar superstorm, uh, the, the, the coronal mass ejection which comes, which, which is associated with that flare, did not come towards Earth, so there was no impact on Earth. So it, it, misses the, it missed the Earth. That's why uh, if they said if it had arrived on Earth, they, they don't know what will have happened. Most things may, may be some damage of, of satellite for communication, for example. We may have experienced a lot of uh, impact on our technological system. But that makes sense that that is something that one would have to monitor just in case next time it, it doesn't look quite that good for us or it doesn't um, end up being so lucky. <laughs> We've been speaking to Mpo Chisapongo from the South African National Space Agency. Mpo, thank you so much for joining us and telling us a little bit more about what the Space Weather Regional Warning Centre does. <laughs> It's definitely good to know that someone is looking out for what's happening on the surface of the sun and good to know what a big impact it can have on us down here. Definitely. I'm just glad I ain't the one getting burnt trying to get close to the sun. That's all. <laughs> Thankfully, you are still on the Science Inside. You're listening to the Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. So we've had a good show today, Lebo, and one of the things that I really like about our conversations around space weather is it's not just NASA out there. Exactly. We're in on it. South Africa's in it. We're killing it. <laughs> and not only have we been speaking to local researchers and scientists looking at the sun, what I love about this, it's my takeaway for, for today's show, is that you and I are actually being affected every day and we don't even know that there are scientists that are warning companies to switch off their satellites or to be more careful. Even the power grid is protected by space weather warnings. And here are you, here's just you and me on the internet thinking everything's fine. You know, we just think the sun is just there photosynthesizing the plants. No, it's also a threat to our internet and people are protecting us from it. It's been a really good show. Yeah. And we would like to thank all our guests featured on the show, including Mpo Tsipangu and Dr. Daniel Kunama. 
Today, our team behind the scenes, as always, is production by Bridget Lepere, Gloria Mabuza, and Harmony Malefe, with tech by the always brilliant Kutlana Sehame. Our podcast is fits.journalism.co.za forward slash science and our show is also on iTunes. Our social media is on Facebook as VowFM and on Twitter as at VowFM. My name is Alna Schütz. And I'm Lohang Madisha. And as always, The Science Inside is produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. We'll be with you again next week. The Science Inside Podcast.